0: that song reminded me of a conversation that earlier in the week regarding eschatology end times someone asked me so are you are you pre-trib? of course that being expressed in in, in the words of that song that when the final trumpet sounds those who belong to the lord will you know be vacated, evacuated, and, and we'll be on our way to heaven and and uh, things are going to get rough here in the world. And my response was, well, you know, I don't think there's a, enough biblical evidence to really embrace that. Well, then are you, are you post-trib? That means that trumpet sounds and God's people, for the most part, are still around, or there's a reinterpretation of what that trumpet means, and that we will live through the hard times. I said, well... I don't think there's a whole lot of evidence for that, biblically speaking, either. Well, then they asked me, so what exactly are you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm a pan I believe that it's all going to pan out in the end, just exactly like God has it planned. So what does that have to do with the Ten Commandments? Absolutely nothing, except I would like to piggyback on something that, that Chad said. In 2013, I do think it would be a marvelous idea to embrace all of the Ten Commandments, and to live passionately for God's glory in obedience to those commandments. And you may relate to this story told by a mom. I read it earlier this week. She said, One night our family was doing a devotional that included the story of the Ten Commandments. And my husband asked our children, How many commandments did God give to Moses? Seth, our five-year-old son, quickly replied, too many. <laughs> Way too many. And there is truth, isn't there, in, in, in each of our hearts from time to time. There is something that 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 kind of rebels against, maybe rebels a strong word, reacts against the idea of, of, of commandments and and laws. There, there just seems to be something in our human condition. I think especially for those of us who are who are raised in a country that 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 just delights and, and glories in, in freedom. We see it as as a right. And so it's it's difficult sometimes, I think, for us to respond or to know how to respond to the idea of of laws, particularly when when there are laws that just don't make sense, at least to us. In a certain situation, there's something in us that that uh, responds to what we might think of our our dumb laws. We understand that that fundamentally, at least, that most laws are are good. They're intended to be good. We appreciate the fact that they are they are there to preserve, to protect life and and, and, and our freedoms as well. Uh, but in those times when laws seem silly or or maybe unreasonable given the circumstance. Uh, we may feel, though we'd never probably admit to it, the liberty at times to, to maybe just kind of push the law a little bit, break the law, okay, maybe just bend the law. If you've ever been to that and Silence house, you know this to be a temptation. As you're going north on Sims, they live on seventy fifth, which in and, and just two houses. I mean as you're as you're sitting there at the light, you're looking at their house. And the sign says, no left turn. Just a stupid sign. (laughs) Exactly. No left turn. But their house is right there. Well, at 2 o'clock in the morning, we have a friend who thought that that was a silly law. There was not a car in sight. There probably wasn't anybody awake at that hour in the neighborhood. Except the police officer that saw her take a left where the sign says no left turn and uh, gave her a ticket for doing so. Dumb law, maybe, but he thought that it was pretty important. And the truth is that we all make judgments, don't we, about the application of certain laws depending upon circumstances, our mood. Um, We bring sort of a a situational ethic sometimes to the certain... Laws to our understanding and our obedience of them. And in our study of the Ten Commandments, I say all of this to remind you, it is important for us to understand that it is never okay to break these laws. These are not the Ten Suggestions. And as we've said, they are certainly ten good ideas, but they... They go beyond the category of good ideas. These are laws. These are given by God, moral laws given to his people so that they could better understand his character and live life in such a way that he would be exalted. Ultimately, the laws are about him. They also are about us and our response But ultimately, they are about him, giving honor and exaltation to him, and out of that, receiving life and blessing as a result of our attention to the laws. Some of you know the name Dorothy Sayers, English poet, mystery writer, playwright. She was also a believer. I like what she says about obedience and blessing to the law. Give a listen she pointed out that in our society there are, what she felt, two kinds of laws. There is the law of the stop sign and there's the law of the fire. The law of the stop sign is a law that says traffic is heavy on a certain street and as a result, the police department or the city council decides to erect a stop sign. They also decide that if you run that stop sign, it will cost you $25 or $30 or $35 or more. If the traffic changes they can up the ante. That is, if too many people are running the stop sign, they can make the fine even larger. Or if they build a highway around the city, they can take the stop sign down or reduce the penalty, making it only $10 if you roll through the stop sign. The police department or the city council controls the laws of the stop sign. But then she said there is also the law of the fire. And the law of the fire says, if you put your hand in the fire, you'll get burned. Now imagine that all of the legislatures of all the nations of the entire world gathered in one great assembly and they voted unanimously that here on out the fire would no longer burn you. The first man or woman who left that assembly and put his or her hand in the fire would discover that the law of the fire is different than the law of the stop sign. Bound up in the nature of fire itself is the penalty for abusing it or being careless with it. So, says Sayers, the moral law of God is like the law of the fire. We talk about breaking the laws of God, but she says, really, you just break yourself on those laws. God can't reduce the penalty because the penalty for breaking the law is bound up in the law itself. Now, think to where we've been so far. We've seen the Israelites rescued from Egypt. After how many years had they been there? Do you remember? 400 years. 400 years. That is approximately 10 generations of Egyptian culture and life and thinking that had worked its way into their lives. And so it's it's safe to say that, or at least reasonable to say, that when they left Egypt, they were probably more Egyptian than they were Israelite. In terms of the culture and the thinking, the way of living that had become theirs after 400 years. And as we noted last week, God had chosen early on in Abraham, before the captivity in Egypt, to make the Israelites his people in order that he could make himself known to all the world through these people As a result of the way that they lived their lives in obedience and relationship to him. And you see this theme over and over and over again in the Old Testament. As a result of living in obedience to him, there was great blessing. There there, there were channels of of grace that, that opened up and flowed into their lives. And yet we've said as well that the keeping of the law after it was given to the people early on in Exodus is not what saved the Israelites. We know that. Keeping the moral law does not save anyone. It is the atoning death of Jesus that brings salvation. However, keeping the moral law, again, was intended to call attention to God. Attention to the greatness of God. Attention to the holiness of God. Attention to who, to who God is in, in all of his splendor and majesty. And as the people gave themselves to obeying the laws, God stood distinguished above the pantheon of gods that they'd been surrounded by for 400 years. And what they began to experience was blessing and prosperity that flowed from that obedience that they had not experienced in 400 years of Egypt are you with me okay so distinctiveness of the law was to point to the character of God and bring blessing upon his people as they obey same is true today The law does not save. Jesus' shed blood is what saves. But giving attention to absolute obedience brings blessing to our lives because it exalts and honors the one who revealed himself in that law. If you get nothing more from what I say this morning, Would you get this? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then don't describe to the pathetic, heretical nonsense that permeates the evangelical culture in which we find ourselves that says if you've prayed the sinner's prayer, then you're in, and it doesn't matter how you live. That is bogus. Thanks, Zach. (laughs) if you have prayed and you have repented of living life on your own and to your own glory and have asked for the forgiveness of God through the redemptive blood of His Son, Jesus, then you are given the gift of the Spirit of God who then begins to work in you the same power that raised Jesus from the dead to give you the ability to live a life that brings glory to Him. Not you! Are we okay on this? Okay, good. Jesus did not die, my friends, so that we could live the way that we want. The reason that he died was so that we could be forgiven for living the way that we want. Okay? He died in order to forgive us our independence, our desire for autonomy, our sinful rebellion, to use Paul's words from Romans, against God so that we could be restored to the relationship for which we were created and then live within that relationship in such a way that God is honored and exalted and praised for what he has done in our lives. I know this feels a little bit like Christianity 101, but I just think it needs to be when we're talking about obedience to the law, understanding that that is not what saves us. Why study the Ten Commandments? It's not what saves us. Well, it's what revealed the character and the holiness of God to His people in a time when God desired for His people to be a bright and shining witness to the nations. That sounds a little familiar to me. That's where we live. We live in a time when God desires, God has always desired, his people to live in such a way that he receives glory for the way that they live we don't pat ourselves on the back we point heavenward we say for who he is we give thanks and we give praise and this is the way that we live our lives because we believe this is what he has called us to because it reveals something intrinsic about his character and his his being and when we are committed to doing that. I think that's when we begin to experience the abundant life that Jesus has promised. And and be careful how you categorize that abundant life. You know, big bank accounts and pink Cadillacs and that kind of stuff, that's more hogwash. Okay? The abundant life flows out of who God is. The abundant life flows out of the Spirit who indwells us and empowers us to live Like Jesus. And when we live like Jesus, there is a blessing and abundance that comes into our life that can't be attained in any other way. And for lack of a better way of saying it, it is living out of the truth that it is well with my soul, it is well with my daily life, it is well for me as I live in a fallen world, I am redeemed. You know, if that's not enough abundance for you, then I guess you're going to have to look elsewhere. So what this means is that God then becomes not just a priority in our lives, not even a high priority in our lives. God needs to be the priority. The priority. The first and the highest priority in our lives, which is exactly what these first two commandments are that we have read together in Exodus. Let me remind you. First, you shall have no other gods before me. And second, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me, listen, and keep my commandments. Did you hear that? God is telling his people that to have and to worship anything or anyone other than him is an expression of hatred toward him. Expression of love to God shows itself in obedience to who he has revealed himself to be morally to his people. Now, imagine your mechanic saying something like that. Imagine your doctor saying something like that. Worse, imagine your pastor saying something like that. You shall have no other pastor in your lifetime. I'm the one. And then you're thinking something like, you know, he has said some stupid things from time to time, but this is really over the top. Is there anyone that we can call? He needs help. Yeah. And and if you thought that, you'd be right. You should think that when you hear proclamations like that coming from a human being. But when God says that, it's a whole different ballgame. We need to listen. If you believe what the scripture teaches about God being your creator, and I assume that you do believe that, then the stakes of our listening and our obedience are much, much higher. Not only did did he create you, and thus he, he knows what is best for you in your life, But he created you, as we've seen many times in the past, for himself. God didn't create and then just say, well, run along now and have a nice life. He created you for himself. That means that you are, by virtue of being a creature, created, you are the property of the Creator. His possession. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing because there is nothing better for any human being than to be possessed by the Creator. That's why we make so much here at Applewood when we talk about uh, being being children of God. Not everyone is a child of God. Paul says in Romans that, that those who have believed... Those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ have become the children of God. They are a special possession. Everybody on planet earth is God's possession. But the relationship that they were created for has been broken by sin. Jesus comes and redeems that and makes it possible for us to not only be God's possession but to be His child. That is special status, my friends. And you are looking just wowed by this truth. <laughs> Woohoo! Wow. I told you that in this study, we want to ask two questions about each of the commandments. First question is: What does this commandment teach us about the character of God? And second, what does it teach us about the human heart? So I hope that it's it's obvious. What this first command teaches us about God is that He is someone, someone, bad word, He is a God who takes His role in our lives very, very seriously. He is not casual about being God. He is not casual about being our Creator. He knows that there is nothing in life that is more essential to our well-being, to our vitality, than to be solely devoted to Him in worship. That is really what's going on in this first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't worship other gods, don't create things. Second commandment that you'll put on a shelf and worship. We'll do. We'll do more with that next week. But, but first, you'll have another gods before me. the The idea that is there is that you will not give your attention. You will give. You will not give your time. You will not give your affections to anyone else but God. Now, we American Christians are, we're people of formulas and and, and steps. So we hear a statement like that. This statement that there is nothing in life that is more essential for our vitality and well-being in life than to be solely devoted to God in our worship. And we hear that statement and we say, well, how, how do we go about that? I want us to read together from Psalm 63 this morning. I'm not sure that there is a better place in all of Scripture that captures the essence of commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. We need to read into that what a slap in the face it is to the Creator who created us for Himself then we go seeking after something else, somewhere else, through someone else you shall have no other gods before me. Let's stand and let's read from Psalm 63 and and listen, listen closely to these words of David. Here we go. You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. Wait, wait, wait. Have you ever expressed that to God in your life? Earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you. Let's read it again. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied, as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings, I cling to you, your right hand upholds me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Now, just in case you had been thinking about the idea of worship, that somehow Sunday morning attendance is what is worship, that my quiet times in the morning are worship, my prayer time, that is worship. David, in this psalm, I think, teaches us something much larger, much grander about worship is, what what worship is. And so I want you to just uh, turn to a neighbor and ask them this question. What is David's attitude, in the words that we just read, what is David's attitude toward his relationship with God? Simple question. What is David's attitude toward his relationship with God? Go ahead. Ask somebody nearby what they think. Okay, we ready? Ready? So, what did your neighbor think? Or what did you tell your neighbor? Have you ever been really, really thirsty? It does kind of bring home that image. Wow. I don't get something to drink here. I think I'm going to die. That's how David is expressing his need of God. What else? What else did you find? That's a great line. Remember that. God is not just giving you gruel. Give Laura credit on that, okay <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, good, good but let, let me jump from that and and go where I want to go for just a couple of minutes. Two words that 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 grab me when I read this text, and again, you know you make it your own, but for me, I hear the word awareness, or I read the idea of awareness, and I read intentionality, you God are my God. Talk about a life-verse statement. That, I think, could be the life-verse statement of every believer. You, God, you are my God. Is that not what God is addressing in the first commandment? Awareness of who God is. You, you are my God. Nothing else will do. Earnestly, I seek you. Boy, there's intentionality. It's right on. It is right on. Because your love is better than life. Wow, that's a statement. Your love is better than life. I mean, how often, my friends, do we we talk about the love of God and, and we can recite ad nauseum Christology and the importance of what God has done for us in Christ but for those who live close to our lives do they know that that's our heartbeat because if they don't know that's our heartbeat then it probably isn't our heartbeat your love your love is better than life my lips will glorify you there's intentionality again My lips will glorify you. Remember, to glorify God is to give God his right place. To recognize the hugeness of God and that there is nowhere that God doesn't belong. And so when my lips glorify God, that means I talk about God wherever I am. And it doesn't really matter who is listening or who is not, who approves or who doesn't. This is my God we're talking about. Be fully satisfied with the richest of foods. Remembering you, God, on my bed after the day has come and gone through the watches of the night. The awareness of God and His presence in my life. Brothers and sisters, I think we need to see in the Exodus story where the Ten Commandments are given to the people of God. We need to see in that story Our story as well. It is both history and I think it is both, it it is also analogy in the sense that the the prelude to the Ten Commandments are these words. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God brought them out of slavery. Egypt with its pharaoh its pantheons of God it was slavery because it was bondage to a life that they were not created for remember we have been created by God for God God brought them out of Egypt to be free and to live isn't that kind of a strange concept he brought them out of Egypt so that they could be free from bondage so that they could live in relationship to him through the keeping of the commands that he had given to them Paul says in Romans that we have been freed from the bondage of sin so that we can be in bondage to God through Christ Jesus. And that is, in fact, freedom. That is life. And the law was to show them their sinful nature. The law was to reveal to them how they had been looking for fulfillment and satisfaction and life in everything else for the past 400 years. The inclination of their hearts was to seek after what they knew. And God revealed himself and said, oh, let me show you what life is all about. Does this make sense to you? I think it's so important that we understand the laws that God gave. They were not random. They were not out-of-the-blue declarations of some small-minded God. They were, they were statements that came from the life-giver to give life to people who had not had life, who had lived in bondage under a king who didn't care two hoots about them other than the fact that they were a handy workforce. You know, to have the Israelites in Egypt meant that his life was easier because they labored Hard. Think of the contrast. Why did God rescue you from sin versus why did Pharaoh want so desperately to keep the Israelites in Egypt? Because he needed them. God rescued you, not because he needed you, but because he loved you. God rescued you because he loved you. And desired for you to know Him because in knowing Him is life. The life that we were created for. So the answer to the first question that we must ask of each commandment, what does this teach us about God, teaches us that He is a pursuing God. In His great heart of love, He is not satisfied for those whom He has created to live their lives in bondage. Experiencing anything less than the complete and total satisfaction that David describes in Psalm 63 that only comes from living intentionally and pursuing, purposefully pursuing that relationship for which they were created. And the coolest thing of all, he didn't have to. But he did. He chose to. That's what he wanted to do. And that's what he still desires, is for us to recognize in him everything that we have ever longed for in the very depths of our being. It's not found anywhere else. So, why is the first commandment a prohibition against worshiping the other gods? Quite frankly, because there are no other gods. It's all a hoax. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's all lies that anything else is going to produce the longing for satisfaction that is resident in our souls. And God knows that because He created us. That is how we were wired. But how about us? Do we... Do we? really know that? Do we really believe that? And of course that leads to the second question we want to ask of each of the commands. What does this teach us about the human heart? Well, the fact that it's the first command says a lot about the human heart. And where those human hearts had gone for 400 years that people will spend a lifetime searching for the satisfaction of their soul, never looking at the truth that is there in relationship to the one Who has made them? So friends, worship at its most basic level. Simple definition, but I think it's worth living with. It's what we give our lives to. Worship is what we give our lives to. How do we demonstrate that we are people who live in obedience to the command, have no other gods before me? We give our lives living for the one who has revealed himself to us. That's worship. Do you remember the temptations that that Satan threw at Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 when he was in the wilderness? You know, turn the stones into bread, jump from the, the, uh, the temple heights. And the last temptation, he took him to a high place and he showed him the kingdoms of the world, Matthew said. And Satan said to Jesus, I will give you everything that you see if you will do what? Bow down and worship me. And do you remember Jesus' response? Away from me, Satan. It's the only time that he says that in those temptations. And I just think that when the possibility of worshiping anyone or anything other than his father was presented to him, They were done. That's it. Get out of here. Away from me. Jesus knew there was nothing in life that was more important, no more satisfying, even in his human state, than the worship of his father. Absolutely nothing. How about us? Do we believe that? Do we live that? Leland Ryken, his professor and an author, I read this quote by him earlier in the week, he said, you know, some years ago in this century, people claimed that, that we work at our play and we play at our work. He said, today, the confusion has even deepened. He said, we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. And my friends, we cannot be people who play at worship. Worship is, is at the heart of who God has created us to be. It is more than what we do here on a Sunday morning. It is more than what you do in your quiet times, other places in your life. Worship is giving God the place that He deserves in our lives, it is pursuing Him. It is passionately telling Him how much we need Him. Oh God, You are my God. I long for You. I need You. I want You. You are all that I need in this life. That's worship. And that's obedience. I think to the first commandment. Having no other gods that distract us from what God has created us today. So praise team, why don't you come on up this morning as we close. It did not go well. <laughs> it didn't end well. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, worship starts with who God is understanding that he needs to be the center of our lives, all that we say, all that we do, all that we think. And that can be evidenced, I think, by the idols that are in our lives, which will lead us to looking more at the second commandment next week. The two commandments, in some ways, are kind of like two sides of the same coin, and yet I would suggest to you that that idols are not necessarily what we think that they are. So, can I send you home with an assignment? You probably knew this was coming. Ask someone who knows you well and and whom you trust to be honest in their answer of this question. Ask them at some point in this week, who or what do you think is at the center of my life? And why do you say that? Who or what is at the center of my life? And why do you say that?